Coming up on the next episode of Way Down in the Hole, we take a deep dive into Bubbles, who at this point in the show has now been clean for 15 months. We also share our favorite scenes and moments and tell you which character won the episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Oh, Jesus Christ, you sick fuck. Oh, there's a serial killer in Baltimore. He preys on the weakest among us. He needs to be caught. You know, the crown ain't worth much. If the nigga wearing it or is getting his shit took. We go a long way in this country killing black folk. Young males especially. Welcome, everybody, to Way Down in the Hole as we make our way through the final season of The Wire. We are now on episode two, which is called Unconfirmed Reports. And I'm just going to say this up top, Ben, because I know you're probably going to clown me for this, and I will deserve it. This episode was better than I remember it being. It was actually pretty good. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if we're here and if we're in our wire silos here. I'll be honest with you. Season five is off to a strong start. It is off to a strong side. All of the people out there that are the season five haters, you don't like season five. You guys have been dreading this, uh, hitting us up on the old Instagram and the Twitter sphere saying, you guys got to do season five now. It's going to make it watchable. No, season five is off to a strong start. I got to be honest with you, man. I know. I was like, holy shit, I might finish this and my opinion might change. But I'm still holding out hope that all the negative things that I thought about season five will still certainly ring uh, true. (laughs) But this was like, it was a really solid episode. And again, I remind people is that there are, this is uh, the shortest season of The Wires, 10 episodes in this one. It was, I think, because it's a little bit more rushed that we're getting to things a lot faster. So it feels like a lot, like it's at a higher pace than some of the episodes that we've started with. But uh, with all that being said, man, what were some of your uh, major takeaways here from unconfirmed reports? It's all about the hidden details coming to light. Hidden details coming to light. Little things that people uh, that people learn. Uh, little things that people know. Little things that the audience didn't know. We got a chance to see Avon again. We didn't know we were going to get a chance to see Avon again. We thought Avon was out of the shop. Yeah, I can't and, wait to break that scene down. And there's another person who thought that they would never have to see Avon again. Just Marlo. It was a weird... It's, I got a lot of stuff to say about that, Marlo and Avon, seeing as you do as well. Uh, Bubbles. Bubbles realizing that there's more work to be done than just getting clean. There are details, small details in getting clean. You can't just get clean of the toxin that's inside of your body. You have to get clean of your soul. You have to clean out so many other things in order to stay clean. And Bubbles is learning the hidden and hard details of what a life of sobriety looks like. Uh, obviously, 
a little nugget that McNulty learns in this episode is the way to manipulate a body post-mortem. <laughs> right. Very important. <laughs> it's, it's something that seems small. It seems small, but it ends up obviously being a gigantic, huge, huge, huge part of this episode and uh, kind of what goes on. So I saw a lot of things um, and I, and and the boy, the boy that uh that that that's inside the closet, right? It's an overlooked. It's the definition of a hidden detail, and that that hit in and of itself on Junebug is it ties everything, all the themes of the episode together. It's kind of a waypoint for everyone to kind of get there right together and kind of a. Uh, it, that that scene almost is very often, very rarely does it feel like one scene could narrate a whole episode, but it seems like if that scene could speak, it would because it's got all the fixings of this particular episode, and it's very very important scene to this one. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I definitely see that. You know, there are certain things, certain details that are already starting to emerge that will play bigger roles in the season, and also will be key components in tying a lot of things together. Because remember, this is the final season. So to a large degree, David Simon and people who work on the show, they're in wrap-up mode. They're trying mm-hmm. to tie some loose ends. They're trying to pay off some storylines that have been developing since season one. So um, there's a lot going on and also making the ambitious decision to introduce an entirely new element to The Wire, which is the media or specifically the Baltimore Sun and how their role influences what the police do, what public perception is, politically, how people maneuver. I think that was his whole point. We talked about this for uh, when we broke down episode one, is that even though, you know, me as a former newspaper person, they definitely sent me through some nostalgia. It just still feels so miscast to have this in there, even though I understand that David Simon in his mind is trying to show how one one component influences the other. Like how the media covers something, how they get people to buy into plug, a public perception to some degree dictates how the political and um, the police force behave. And so how they're all kind of tied to one another. And reading uh, some of all the uh, all the pieces matter, I'll give David Simon a bit of a break because I do understand this. He said he also introduced the newspaper element because he wanted to show how the media was complicit in the sense that all these things, these major problems are going on right under the media's nose. And it is supposed to be our job. Uh, Remember I told you what the ethos is in journalism is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, right? And so it is your job to hold systems and people accountable, especially those in authority uh, positions. And the media often doesn't do it. They just go along with the narrative that they've been fed or they create another false narrative that really doesn't get to the heart of what the issues are. So his entire mentality into bringing the media into this was to show how they too are another system that's complicit in urban demise. So just uh, something to think about for people. Um, But now, yeah, let's get to this uh, recap of what happens here in unconfirmed reports. Um, So Snoop, Chris and Marlo, they back in business because major crimes uh, has been disbanded for the 5011th time of the series of The Wire. And uh, Marlo instructs them, key component here, to make Omar resurface. Um, and he also instructs them to kill Junebug, who was apparently talking shit about Marlo, or they think he was talking shit about Marlo, and they basically wind up murdering 
pretty much most of June Bogue's whole family, with the exception of two children that escaped. It was the one that was in the closet and the one, the one that booked out that the went, back. That booked out the back door that Mike let go. Marlo also continues to scheme his way to get to the Greeks because he clearly has a mission. We can see this agenda from a mile away. He is trying to cut out Prop Joe. And to do that, that means he had to meet, uh, which he didn't know, but he had to wind up meeting with Avon in prison, who, as Van mentioned, we thought we'd seen the last of Avon. You know, he went off and got like a thousand years in jail. We thought that was probably it. But oh no, he resurfaces and he has a very meaningful scene with Marlo, which we'll break down in a moment. Now, I don't think uh, Avon has that much time, though. Really? Because it felt like he got like a ton of time. But maybe I, that was just my impression that he did because he was, I mean, that was his second stint. <laughs> right. I think he, he, they got him on a parole violation. So he just has to serve oh, out the right, rest of, of the, his sentence. Yeah, of the because guns. he was around the guns. Yeah. yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. Avon got that much time. Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, maybe there is uh, hope for a brighter day. Right. Um, so, uh, and also frustrated that his plan to go take Marlowe's case federal didn't work. And it didn't work because Carcetti had, Kind of cussed out the attorney, uh, the U.S. attorney. Hidden detail. Hidden detail. You never know who you cussing mm-hmm. out, boy. Yeah. <laughs> it turned out to be somebody who could have potentially helped the department. And that shit is no longer. So McNulty doing as McNulty does. He is in full self-destructive mode. He stages a homicide to make it look like there's a serial killer in the, on the loose. And this is a huge, huge um, key storyline that will power through the rest of this series. And Gus continues to have his suspicions about the Scott, who turns in a story about opening day that is riddled with questions and the fact checking is like, eh, I don't know about this one. That also is a storyline that bears everyone watching. Um, but for now, uh, we're going to take a deep dive into one of our favorite characters. We talked about him many, many times before, but we knew that there were different versions of this character. And so right now we're going to break down clean Bubbles. Bubbles has been clean for 15 months, right? I mean, and I know why, I don't ever remember him being clean for this long. <laughs> don't. So, yeah. I don't think he has. And I'm granted, we're not always aware of the time, but I, I think this is, I'm going to say this is a, a new record for Bubs. And so we catch up with Bubs. He's at a phase in his life where a lot of traumatic things that have happened, the most traumatic, of course, being the fact that his young protege, Sherrod, got high off some doctored heroin that Bubs had when he was trying to get that bully off of his back and Sherrod died. And Bubs has been living with this pain and this trauma. Uh, he Certainly, he attempted suicide, but I think it's also what engineered him getting clean. Now we're in um, the portion of the story where we see a different kind of bubbles than what we've ever seen before. So what is it about this particular version of Bubbles that's so different than the previous versions we, we've had, you know, aside from the fact that he's clean now? Uh, he somehow seems more tortured. Bubbles seems more tortured in sobriety than he did in addiction. In addiction, Bubbles, he, he oftentimes sort of, uh, you know, was reflective about his life and his station and how he had become who he was. But he seemed in a way at peace with it. Yeah, he was kind of upbeat, if yeah, you know. I yeah. mean, for somebody who's addicted to heroin, like, he was pretty upbeat. <laughs> right. Like, you you saw him. Very rarely did you not see a smile on Bub's face. He, for some reason, he believed in himself and believed what he could do. He was always trying to scheme. There, there was purpose there. I think kind of what there was. The purpose in his life was to get high. And that purpose led him to do all kinds of things, right? So the purpose led him to work with the cops. The purpose led him to scheme. The purpose 
led him to kind of, you know, figure out the angles on the street and, you know, do all of this different stuff and kind of figure out how he was going to get by. And he had to be resourceful and all of that. That purpose is gone. And he's having trouble finding a purpose to replace it with because he can't access sort of what it was that made him want it to get clean because he can't talk about Sherrod. And so because he can't talk about Sherrod, he can't talk about the debt that he feels like he has to pay. And if he can't talk about that debt, then he can't really access and live in the purpose that's going to keep him on the straight and narrow. And it's very, very interesting to see that character try to find that because you see really someone who's been both robbed of their greatest pain and their greatest joy at the same time. It's absolutely fascinating. He looks sad all the time. I don't know if Bubbles has smiled one time, except for the time when he was reminiscing on how high he used to get. Yeah, he called himself a, a scarecrow. Uh, although I would say this, that I think the biggest difference I see with Bubs is that he, you could tell that he he feels like he needs to be punished, right? Yeah. Like that's the sense I get from him. That it, this is not just sadness. This is also somebody who feels like he doesn't deserve anything. And I don't know if we've seen Bubbles at this low of a point, even though, He's actually clean. Right, right. I mean, and to your and and to your point, it must be really hellacious to negotiate with the fact that you miss probably inside of yourself the lifestyle that you had when you were getting high every day and going crazy. But you also realize that you can't do that anymore because of the price that you had to pay. And not just the price that you had to pay, the price that somebody else had to pay. Uh, for your addiction. I think, obviously, Bubbles was ready to go any day in terms of, you know, he could have caught a bad package. He could have misjudged what it was he was shooting himself. There are all kinds of things. He could have ran up. That guy could have beat him to death. I think Bubbles could have been cool with going out like that at any time. That's kind of the, 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 the risk that you take. But I think the one thing that would break him was if somebody else died because of his addiction mm. and somebody who he cared about. And I think that's the thing that he couldn't deal with. Well, it's interesting because like, and, and and I'm sure our listeners would correct me if I'm wrong. I don't recall him shedding one single tear when Johnny got killed. Well, Johnny didn't get killed. Johnny overdosed. Johnny overdosed, yeah. Right? And Johnny overdosed and he had rats nibbling at his body, right? And he died in a, in a, in a, in a dope house and like in a very, a very expected way for somebody who's in that lifestyle. And I don't think it, it impacted, it might have impacted Bubbles on some level, but it didn't really grab him the way that what happened with Sherrod. And, and maybe because Bubbles felt like, obviously, it was more of his fault because he was trying to avenge somebody or get his revenge on somebody who was disrupting his life. And Sherrod became a casualty of, of that revenge and also um, just of the life that he was living uh, kind of in general. And I, I guess you're right. I mean, it is different when you feel like it's your fault because for as many schemes and as many things that Bubs had been involved with, um, and, you know, some level as much as he had taken from people, you know, be, I know we're talking about material possessions, he could at least have the clean slate of saying, you know, but I never killed anybody. Right. You yeah. know? And, Nobody ever died because of what I'm going through. Nobody was ever physically harmed, like Bubbles would rob you. He would swindle you, but he wouldn't beat you over the head and rob you. So yeah, you're absolutely right by that. Yeah, and he had a sense of uh, 
of morality, despite, you know, the fact that he was involved in, in, in such a dark world. And um, I think you're right about the purpose because Bugs has kind of been at his best when he's had a purpose. And I don't mean the purpose of getting high because that's, I guess that's kind of a general overall purpose. But think about how much joy he got out of helping um, McNulty and Kima. Like helping the police, he really got off on. He really felt a sense of, of worth and value. It wasn't about him snitching, although the entire series of, of The Wire starts or Bubs becomes, as you so wonderfully put it, the Tony Starks of CIs because of Johnny getting beat up unnecessarily, yeah. right? So he had this sense of righteousness about him, even though he's, you know, obviously a, a heroin addict. So you go from there and even to the many capers that him and Johnny got into, Johnny gave him a sense of purpose, a sense of value. He had companionship. Sherrod, it was the same thing. It was the ability to act almost like a father figure to somebody else and to try to, in some ways, keep them off the path that he was on, or at least that's what he thought that he was doing, and to take care of somebody else. And so I think there's always been a caretaker instinct, um, like instinct that Bubs has always um, had. Uh, one of the best scenes, I think, with him in this episode, and it's a scene where he has no words, but I think the nature of what he's doing describes the anguish that he's in is when he's cleaning the pots and pans and he is scrubbing the shit out of these pots and pans. Right, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. he is, he he's feeling, you know, he said he doesn't feel anything, which I think was a lie to his sponsor, but he's feeling everything. And I thought it was interesting when the pastor of this uh, of this this home that he's working in asked him, well, don't you want to serve people food? And he was like, no, I don't want to do that. And in that moment, I realized it's because Bubs didn't think he was worthy to be serving other people food because he thinks of himself as a murderer. He's like, because of what I've done, I need to do the most low bottom shit possible. I need to be back here scrubbing dishes unseen by everybody. This is this is my punishment for what I've done. And if you know anybody who struggled with addiction, and I, I certainly have known uh, a few, is the hardest part of it is forgiving yourself for the shitty things you've done. That's the hard part. And Bubs is struggling mightily with forgiving himself for what happened to Sherrod. Yeah, like he he's probably thinking to himself, the last time I helped, it didn't really work out so well. So, I, you know, I, I'd rather task uh, than be of service. I, talk, I was talking to one of my uncles one time. I used to have this thing to where I would get dizzy in malls. I was light sensitive. I don't know why it happened. Maybe it was a hormone puberty thing. And um, I would walk into a mall. And for some reason, when you'd see like the lights that are in a department store, like they would make my head hurt, I would get dizzy. Uh, stuff like that. It actually might have been, the doctors say now, my anxiety presenting itself as a, as a, as a kid, right? But I remember coming home and talking to one of my uncles about it, same uncle I always talk about on here, that had been, and he was like, uh, you just need things a little bit muted, huh? Like you want to turn the lights down on the whole world and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, 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 it's easier. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's why young, that's why young Kamar could get high. <laughs> and that's what he would say. Wow. And that's what he says. like, the world, the world too bright. I turn the world down a little bit. Turn out, then, I, then I can kind of function. You know, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about a little weed, a little whatever you got, just mellow me out a little bit. I was always too, blah, blah, blah. He talks about it a little bit, was laughing and stuff. I never forgot it. And you kind of see that with Bubs right now. He doesn't have anything to mute the world for him, man. Everything feels too real. He's feeling it all. He's up there, everybody else, he, he's, he's, he's trying to use. And then the brilliance of the scene between him and Steve Earle is that Steve Earle in that scene, Waylon, 
will not let Bubs stand outside of the light. He won't. He's saying, no, you have to feel this. Bubs is trying to get the feeling off of him. What is he trying to do? Like, you're in the room. You feel the tension. You break the ice with the joke. And before you know it, you're performing for people, right? Because you don't want to feel the awkwardness of, of standing in front of them and really having to be yourself. And that's what that's not what he wants to do. So Waylon, Waylon's looking at him because he's like, nah, this is a moment where we need you to feel your way through this. We need you to be in the dark right now. And Bubs just kind of doesn't want to do it. It's really, like I said, we, we're talking about season five. And everyone listening to this is, there's unanimity. If, is that a word? What does that mean? Unanimity? Is like everybody, is, is that, what does that mean? Do you mean like It's like uniformity? unanimous. Uniformity. What does okay. unanimity mean? Does unanimity mean anything? I don't think that's uh, that, a word, that's what, man. You, that's, what, that's, what you, that's what niggas get. <laughs> Just, you see what I'm saying? That's what I, niggas get when they try to, nah. I mean, but it sounds like it should be a word. I could, you know what? I probably could have dropped it. Or do you, and, did you mean anonymity? No, I didn't mean okay. anonymity. I meant like it's, it's, it's everyone, there's homogeneity of opinion. Oh, so yeah. uniformity. Uniform, uniformity. I meant uniformity. Meant Does uniform. unanimity mean anything? I don't even know how to spell let, that. Let, 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 let me see. Unanimity. I'm trying to like. So, oh, oh, wait. Un- hold up. I do. I see. You. Uh, yeah, I see unanimity. Hold on. What does it mean? Um, it means. Ah, agreement. A consensus or undivided opinion. I okay. Been, okay. I, All right. I'm giving you credit. I thought it wasn't a word. I. I'm saying because I. It sounded but, wrong. It sounded wrong. But here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, though. As soon as I said it, I was like, I don't know about that one. <laughs> you wanted it back. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a Nick Young deep three to hey, where. But you, but you hit it though. But I hit it. I hit it, and my man Nick be hitting them too. Yeah. Um. So you know, there's unanimity in uh, opinion uh, largely about season five. Everyone thinks that season five is a uh, is trash, is whack, is horrible. Do people think? Okay, which season do you feel like people say is more trash? Five or two? Because I feel like two is the runaway leader on this. I think that two is. I think there are two different types of Wire fans. I think there are Wire fans with a small F, and then there are Wire fans with a capital F. I think most capital F Wire fans appreciate season two. I would agree. And I think most small F Wire fans think that season two is terrible. Yeah, I judge you and your Wire fandom based off how you feel about season two. Right. And so that's that's the thing. I think both capital F and small F wire fans both have major problems with season five, but I would challenge them to go back and watch it again because even what we're talking about, this this storyline in this season of The Wire is unique. It doesn't even, the tone of it doesn't even exist in any other season. Someone's a whole sort of narrative about somebody's redemption. Not somebody struggling between good and bad like D'Angelo. But a whole narrative about hope and somebody's redemption, they just don't have it anywhere else. It's really moving and effective in the season of of work. What I would say is that I think even those who complain about season five, they may complain about certain storylines, but they overall feel satisfied because of some of the conclusions that happen later on. So, so you know, it's just that I think the shock of season two of completely changing the cast most, I mean, you know, for minimizing the characters that they have built in season one is the biggest issue that people have with season two. But what they can't say is like, they can't say it was, poor, they certainly can't say it was poorly written or that 
it, it the storylines weren't good or anything like that. They just they weren't ready for those characters. But season five, I think there are some elements where you'll be like, I don't know if that plot makes sense. I don't know. If I mean, this- no, you're obviously you're right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously you're right. But I still think that um, in the grander scheme of things, it still ends up being only one aspect of it. And I'm wondering now if we've because I'm thinking about how powerful this thing is with Bubs, Right. And I'm wondering now if that aspect, that whole thing, which we're going to get into in this episode, is sort of being overweighted. If right. we're if we if we've uh, if we've unfairly judged it just because it is one ridiculous aspect of the season. Well, as I said, I'm waiting to have my mind change. I will accept it. We'll see how I feel at the end of season five. But yeah, I mean, that's our breakdown of clean bubbles. He's dealing with a lot of shit. He's tortured. Uh, he's trying to find himself again in many you know respects. And if you think, I mean, the, the whole reason that a lot of people do drugs is to escape. And so yeah. when you've taken away that escape hatch then you got to deal with the real shit of life. And that's just, you know, that's not easy for any of us to do, whether we own drugs or not. So, mm-hmm. so it's just a part of that unfortunate um, thing called adulting. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Now let's talk about Van, some of the best scenes or moments from episode two. What do you got? All right. Going to go through them fast. It's a lot. Uh, well, you can go through the, the, the lesser ones, but it, we can certainly take a deep look okay. at the, the big one. Because I think we probably both agree the meeting with Avon, best scene in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. We can take right. a deeper look at that. So I'll go through the lesser ones then. Uh, Clay and Burrell. Love it. Oh, my God. First of all, all right, the clay, clay stutter. Yeah. The clay stutter. You, 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 think, <laughs> you think I'm you think I'm done, don't you? Yo, when he came at him and called them ungrateful bitches. Ungrateful like, bitches. <laughs> that, that was off the top rope. The stutter mm-hmm. and ungrateful bitches. I was like, Clay Davis was at his finest moment in this particular scene. Uh great. Uh Lester and Sidner. Mm, that's a good that, one. That scene is a remix scene. A woke 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 remix scene. That scene between Lester and Sidner is a scene to me that's remixed from the scene between Lester and McNulty. Do you remember the scene with Lester and McNulty 
where Lester is telling McNulty, you need to get something else outside oh, of here. Oh, he was like, when he told him the job will not save you. The job will not save you. Apparently, right. Lester forgot what he was talking about to McNulty because in that scene between Sidner and Lester, Lester basically says that a good case and then he can die happy. Yeah. You start to see the fact that something's changed in Lester between when he was talking to McNulty, he was telling McNulty, hey, the job can't save you. It's not all about the job. And then fast forward a couple of seasons, not completely one-to-one, but close enough, he basically says, this case is the type of big case that I can make and I can die happy. And that scene sets up Lester's character to do something that if you would have asked me in any other season, you would have never thought that Lester would have done. So for you, this is also a father's away for later, too. Huge father's yeah. away for later moment between Lester and Sidner. Uh, the newspaper meeting um, between Scott. Oh, yeah. Uh, Scott versus Gus, where Scott is looking at, he's picking at Gus. Scott is cunning. He sees the weaknesses there between Gus and I guess his main, main editor, top chief guy. What do you call that in the newspaper? Um, I, I would assume he's either the managing editor or the, or the executive editor. Um, and you're right. He sees the dynamics that he has been anointed and that in a power struggle, he could win because he's got the guy with the bigger title behind him. Right. So he sees that and he's picking at him. Love that. Obviously, Mike, Snoop and Chris all in the yeah, car. In the car. That was a great scene. Huge father's away for later moment mm-hmm. as well. Um, uh, and then the three others, I think we can cut, talk, kind of talk about a little bit more in depth if you want to, like Akima and the boy, Jimmy fucking up the crime scene. And of course I think, oh, I forgot one. There's an early precursor to Black Lives Matter. There's a Black Lives Matter scene in this episode. There's a Black Lives Matter scene in this episode. And that is Bunk. Lester, oh, yes, at the and bar. Jimmy in the bar. Yes, I telling you, precursor to black. They're, they're talking that's a, about that's basically what they said. Yeah, they're, they're talking about the fact that if it was anybody else in Baltimore getting killed, if it was tourists, if it was white ladies, if it was even black kids, anybody else in Baltimore getting killed, they'd have the military in there. But that in Baltimore, black lives, specifically black male lives, just don't matter. Yep. No, that that was uh, that was definitely great foreshadowing. I mean, think about it. Twenty two young black men found in row houses and everybody's like, eh, eh we can sit on that one. Um, no, those are all great scenes. I would add to it on a smaller level before we discuss the big scene. Unless you had this as a big scene, the drive-by scene. I don't know if you had that as a... I didn't have it as a big scene. I had okay. it as one of the scenes that I love. Okay, I love that scene just because, I mean, Snoop makes that scene. When mm-hmm. she's like, fuck them West Coast niggas because it be more, we aim and hit a nigga. And hit a nigga. <laughs> uh, and of course, you gotta love anytime there's a Boys in the Hood reference, so... I gotta um, be honest with you. Mm. Not to diss Baltimore, because I feel like I can't wait to get out to Baltimore after all of this is over. I actually ordered some Faley's. What? I ordered some Faley's crab cakes and some Faley's. I ordered them. They'll be here what? this weekend. Yeah, you can order that shit. Like the uh, Faley's okay. crab cakes. They didn't have any of the cotties that the, that that uh, Omar was eating. Omar had, yeah. I'm like, you know, Jamel, I might pull up on y'all. Look. We might pull up on y'all and, and shake it down with the Uts, the Faley's. And we might sit there with the thing and crap crabs and do the whole night. I ordered some of the crabs too. I ordered some. I ordered some of that shit. Look at that. Well, you did you add because this was this was the food feature of of episode two. Did you order some scrapple? No, I don't even know what that is. I meant okay. to, I, 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 I had to, that. I had that in trivia. 
Okay. I'll explain. I'll explain I, what scrambling is. <laughs> I, meant to, I meant to Google it. I didn't get a chance to Google it. I don't even know what that is. But uh love Baltimore. And I mean it, but the fact you can tell that the Baltimore hip hop scene isn't where it needs to be. Because the fact that nobody took that line and then put it in a chorus somewhere, in Baltimore, we aim and we hit a nigga. Like it, it, like if that was any other city, that they would would have would have showed this popular, they would have took that, looped it. Put something on it, and that would have been, or 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 dropped it, like screwed it in Baltimore. We hear him, and we hear the nigga. That would have something. <laughs> that would have been uh, the, the hook of something. L remix or something. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, another scene I thought was was powerful was the opening scene with the young lady who was giving her testimony at the AA meeting, and when she said, "Whatever it is you tell yourself you won't do to get high, you're pretty much making a list of everything you will do as soon as your inner addict tells you to." I was like, damn, she dropped a bar on that one. Yeah, yeah. And and I don't know if you had this as, as one of the bigger scenes to, to take note of, but when Marlo was telling Chris and Snoop that it's back to work now, you know, Marlo is, is, is interesting. His character, for him to be as stoic as he is, it, it is sort of amazing that he's so sensitive, mm. right? Understandably why he wants Omar, because, you know, can't just be robbing the biggest right. drug dealer you know, in the city, arguably. So I understand that part of it. But the June bug part of it, it's like, you that sensitive, dog? Like, you... We learned Marlo's fatal flaw. That is it. That's his fatal flaw, is that he's super sensitive. But it, the, the best line he had to me when he was talking to Chris and Snoop is when he said, the crown ain't worth much if the nigga wearing it is getting his shit took. Yeah. And so he sees anybody who says something about him, certainly if somebody tried to do what, what, what uh, Omar did, he just sees it and like Avon felt that way about the crown, but he mostly felt that way. He didn't feel exactly that way, but he felt that way about territory. Marlo feels this about like being known as the king. Like that shit is everything to him. But it's like, you realize this ain't an official title, motherfucker. Like you didn't get, there's no, mo- you know, there's no monarchy here. Like what, right. you know, it's like. I don't think Avon would have ever caught a body over an insult. Maybe no. a, maybe an insult to his face, like disrespectful like it from to everyone. Be so deep and severe, but over something that he heard, no right. way. And because, he's not even sure if the dude said it. And if you look at it, it was a miscalculation because of all the heat that it drew that that is going to draw, and because of what it's going to do to Mar to Marlo in the eyes of Michael. Like literally, the decision to do this essentially is going to end up costing one of Marlo his. Marlo, one of his best lieutenants. Yep. Because it starts something. And with any of the leaders of the bosses in the wire, more specifically, uh, the underworld characters, the the criminals, if you will, we always learn what their big fatal flaw is, what their thing that they can't U-turn, can't turn back is. And then we kind of slowly see how it affects everybody else in their world. Yeah. And so uh, it, it, it was definitely, it's definitely a tale for Marlo that he... And he cares that much about what the whispers are on the street. Like, he's like a full-on dictator, which is like, yeah. what are you doing? All right, now let's get to the scene both you and I loved and agreed was the best scene of Unconfirmed Reports. And that is when Marlo met with Avon in prison. Uh, what did you love about this scene, man? The first thing I loved about it is the fact that we haven't seen Avon in a little while. But based off this one small little scene, we can tell exactly what kind of headspace he's in. Like, first of all, he's brilliantly acted, man, by Wood Harris. Because up in this bitch here, I'm, I'm, I'm what you might consider an authority figure. He's letting you know that, like, 
you know, I'm in here, but still, still, Marlo, after all of this time, if you are going to get what you want, you still got to come through me. Oh, yeah. That was like the satisfaction on Avon's face in this right. whole scene is like he's he wasn't able to outmaneuver him on the street. Marlo got the best of him literally every time. But now he is in the catbird seat because he's standing between him and what he ultimately wants, is, which is not just to be king of, of the east side. He wants to be king of the whole city. Of the whole city. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And so in that, you kind of see, you know, where Avon's at right now. Avon has embraced his role as an authority figure inside of prison. Avon also has, to a large degree, quite remarkably moved past the Stanfield-Barksdale War. Now, that to me, especially in the times that we're living in right now, Avon is better adjusted than President Trump. Avon Barksdale is better adjusted. He's got more dignity than President Trump. President Trump has taken a clear defeat and refuses to move on from it. Avon is like, yo, bygones be bygones. But look, this is still me. So really, in a way, everything that we thought about Avon's character is kind of confirmed in this scene. He's still hustling. Still seeing angles, still seeing ways ways to put meat in the freezer, right? He's still charming. You still know. looking out for his family because that hundred grand is going it's to going, his sister. Go, going who, to his sister. Who, when we last checked in on their relationship, she couldn't stand him because she, she found out what him. he did to uh, D'Angelo. Right. So still, still provide, still doing all of that, and at the same time, still to a degree, almost in spite of himself, in a seat of power. In Baltimore, Avon is very simply, he just that nigga. And this scene right here kind of like this scene to me and then the scene that follows it with Sergey, where you actually hear, I don't ever remember hearing Marlo actually say Avon's name. I know he's save, he said Barksdale before, but maybe I can't remember. It just, it was like me and Avon here, like they're together. It's just fucking crazy. I watched it like three or four times. It's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, like they joined forces. Right. You know, they had their battle and their war on the street and Avon's uh, Achilles heel was that he got too caught up in defending the territory, you know, and and Springer was trying to tell him the territory doesn't matter. And he got caught up in that. He ultimately lost. He took the L. But now he's just like, okay, we have a more common enemy that is defeating this half of Baltimore. Right. Uh, Because I'm sure he's thinking about that ass whooping prop Joe gave him in that basketball Basketball game. game. (laughs) So I'm sure all of that is all uh, tied up into that. And, you know, I I think it also crystallizes not just where Avon it is. Avon is. It crystallizes the difference, the differences between Marlo and Avon. Marlo may be more powerful than Avon, ultimately, given the resources he's been able to collect. I think his organization is probably a little tighter. He's a little bit more hands-on than Avon was. Avon had a stringer. Uh, you know, Marlo doesn't really have that. Chris is the closest thing, but Chris is a different function than what Stringer was. And I think it's fair to say between the two is that Marlo may be a better leader in terms of how he has his organization, but I think Avon 
is the one I'd most want. I'd, I'd rather have him in charge than Marlo, you know, because Marlo has, there is, yeah, there's a coldness, there's a ruthlessness to it. And Avon could certainly be ruthless as well. Sure. But, but Avon has a code and Marlo doesn't. And that's why, you know, as much as Marlo may have bested him, he will never be Avon, you know, to me. And so uh, it was, it was interesting to see where they were. And for, you know, I was rooting for Avon in that scene because he pulled some OG shit. It's like he pulled $100,000 out of a meeting. Right. And that, well, a meeting with no guarantees. With no guarantees. That, yeah, that he was going to give up the Greeks and, right. and, and or, or negotiate a meeting between all of them. I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty tactical. To what you were just saying, the average citizen of West Baltimore is safer with Avon running things than they are with Marla. Oh, now, 100%. Like, because the reality is that if you don't witness nothing or don't get to witnessing nothing, Avon you're probably, probably, right. you're probably, probably straight. You might catch straight. a stray, but right. you're probably all right. Marlo, it could just be the wrong day. You could be a security guard at your job. You could be in the wrong spot. You could be a delivery woman making a delivery to old face Andre. If Marlo thinks you're better off to him dead or like, he it would know no, no second thought. So it's just a safer, Avon runs a safer place uh, for, the, for the average everyday citizen. A- Avon's a safer drug kingpin. Than a safer drug kingpin. <laughs> Look, and you know your grandma gonna be protected on Sundays when she wear her crown if Avon right. is in charge. I don't know yeah. if Marlo's making, Marlo might have d- d- did exactly what Stringer did. Like, all right, so what is Sunday? Right. Like, yeah. Right? But yeah. a- Avon feels I think Marlo had been killed on Easter Sunday. Oh hell yeah! Christmas morning, like I think, like I, I don't think Marlo cares about any of that. It, like it, I don't think he cares about any of that. Nah, he's ruthless, and especially you know when you think about how much more violent his attacks have been. You know the June bug scene, and it, it, you know in particular, like what he got Chris and Snoop, you know, kind of to do. And as Michael so eloquently put it, why does boy got to be dead for talking shit? It's like. Right. Who does that? That's your question. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. Why am I? Why am I? I'm sorry. I, I stepped on you again. I'm sorry. My no, bad. I had nothing. Go ahead. Oh, oh. Um, when the boy is running out of the back, Michael sees him, doesn't let him go. Like Michael sees him, lets him go. If Chris and Snoop are back there, do you think they drop the kid? Ooh, that's a good question. Okay, I think Snoop does. Chris, I don't know if he has it in him to do it either. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. that, even though Chris is like completely out of his mind, but you get some indications later on that Chris does have some kind of family. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Whereas Snoop is like, I don't know if she does. She has a sister. Oh yeah, yeah, she does have a sister. They showed that they showed the little, and by the way, they showed the sister in the scene. They just didn't. They showed it in in the scene in the eighth grade. I didn't get a chance to bring this up in this episode. They show a little girl, they get a close-up of her who has who wears her hair exactly like Snoop does, with the uh with the braids coming down to the side. And that plus the fact that um, I think it was it was uh Randy that said, Hey Snoop, your little your uh your sister's in my class. You get the fuck out of here. That's a good what what do you think? I don't know. Mm. I don't I don't know. I don't know. I haven't it it. The fact that we're even thinking about it. Now, would you is, have said for sure going into it that Michael definitely wouldn't? Yes, I knew my, yeah, I know Michael. Yeah, I mean, he's got a brother. He's going to see Bug. 
Yeah, he's gonna see both. Like, so there's I no know way Mike. I, I know Mike won't, but Chris and Snoop, I can't be sure. I I can't be sure that they wouldn't. I can't. I I can't be sure that they that they wouldn't. Chris is a fucking stone cold. Oh, he's a psychopath. Yeah. So I I, I can't be sure. Whew, that's a tough question, and I'm yeah. sure those who are listening, um, you should tweet us and let us know whether or not you think it would have, uh, whether or not this would have happened. Would would they have, you know, would they have ultimately, um, would either one of them have done this? And uh, man, I I just I guess I just don't know. But great question to to ask, nevertheless. Um, so yeah, those are some of our best scenes and moments from uh, unconfirmed report. Now let's talk about unconfirmed reports rather. Now let's talk about some of the things that age the best. What aged the best to you? What aged the best to me is one, lying to your boss. Well, I've said that before. <laughs> That's aged the best on this. It's one thing that if as long as there are bosses, people will lie to them. You know what I mean? Scott much. Scott is the fucking Mariano Rivera of lying to your boss. He is the the all time unanimous greatest closer ever. He <laughs> he just made up a story. Well, I mean, people have to realize, okay, during this time, um, and I don't know if you recall this fan, there was a huge controversy with Jason Blair. Yes, I do. Yes, uh, right. So you had that, and there was a few other instances. You might have to explain that for people so they right. remember. So Jason Blair was uh, a writer. I think I'm trying to remember the the publication that he was at. I know he worked for the New York Times, but he, I think he was still at the New York Times, but he resigned because he had fabricated a ton of stories while he was there. And so it was like a huge thing. And a big controversy because of, of, of some of the stories that he had fabricated. He had either fabricated them totally or plagiarized them. And it was like a, a number of articles that he had done this with. And it was a lot of conversations about him being a star on the rise too early. And because, you know, there was some complicated racial dynamics because he's black. And so, um, you know, there's this whole, uh, this whole indictment of, of, of culture and newspaper where you promote stars and people who are not necessarily um, great reporters, but who just because the higher ups like and the New York Times, they were trying to create a black superstar. So they uplifted and put somebody in this position who really wasn't ready for it. And as a result, you got uh, a thousand, um, you know, and it, uh, you had a thousand fabrications and people tried to use Jason Blair as if he was some indictment against affirmative action, like all black reporters plagiarize. And like, this is why you shouldn't let these people write. Like, it was just one of those things. So it was a huge, um, thing in, in, in the business because um, I think it I think it happened uh, like in the early early 2000s so this so would have been just kind of a Mac, just a just an unbelievable the type of thing right now that had to happen it would have trended for like four four straight days oh but it my was God. just a gigantic story yes it was a huge story and so by Scott is kind of uh, uh, emblematic of of a statement clearly that David Simon is trying to make, not necessarily about Jason Blair, because again, it was a few of those cases. He was not the only run, and you know, it's just uh, it, it was. It's every time it happens, it's like obviously a very shameful indictment on on the media. But there were some several sort of notable people who were caught at big publications plagiarizing, fabricating, making things up. So this is kind of going in line with that. So yes, um, lying to your boss, making up stories. Uh, yep. That, yeah. That's happened. That was yeah. a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, also, in that same situation, getting big time. <laughs> Gus got big time so many times. And it's, God God bless Gus, man. Gus got big time. And in the newsroom, what, one thing I can tell you about working in the newsroom was 
That right there is how you make lifelong enemies, right? That's the why, how you make career-defining enemies. Because uh, newsrooms are like little fiefdoms. There's a big fucking huge king, and then he has a bunch of noblemen that are running around. So everybody reports to some sort of nobleman. So when I was a senior producer, there might be something that someone wanted to do. They might come to me and say, whenever you come to me and you say you have something you want to do, I say, oh, it's great. I never, I, that's why I'm not cut out to manage people. I never say, hey, that's, that makes no sense. It's just not my spirit. Hey, go try it. Write that shit up. Uh, then I'll, I'll bring it over there. So I, I don't care. I don't fucking care. Like, I'm not going to tell you, hey, it's whack. It's not for me. And I also don't want to, here's another thing I don't want to do. I don't ever in life want to be in charge of somebody's vacation time. How the fuck I'm going to tell you, you can't go to Cabo. I never want to be the guy. Don't give a fuck. Van Lathan's sidebar. Not even about anything that happened, but about just me. I never in life want to be the guy counting somebody's vacation days. Think about that. You want to go on vacation. There's somebody's job who's to, to tell you, you can't go. They don't want you to go on vacation. That's, that's a terrible to job to have. They want you to stay at work. You want to go relax with your family. You want to chill. You want to do this. And it's somebody's job. Like, when I would write my, my vacation request, and I put my vacation request in, I'd look around like, what a fucked up world that I, that, 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 that I have to ask permission for fun. You know? Like, I have to ask permission for fun. It's so stupid. You know what I'm saying? So I, I never want to be that. I never want to be like, oh, Van. And then you have to, because listen, these decisions are real. You got to make real decisions about it, right? You got, because like, you know, you get enough people to be on the show and everybody can't go at the same time. Somebody else, I don't want that. I don't want to, I don't, especially with these kids. These kids are 24, 25. They want to go to Electric Daisy Carnival and Coachella and stuff like that. And it's their whole year. You saw, I saw people cry. I literally saw people cry because they couldn't go to Coachella. I'm like, you can still go. Like you can go, you can go after work on Friday, and then you can come, come back. back. Yeah. And you come back. No, it's not what we want to do. We want to leave out early, like seven a.m. Get down to India. I'm gonna be stuck in traffic and blah 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 blah. No, I'm not into it. I don't want to ever do it. But, <laughs> but, but, inside of a newsroom, let's say you have a story, you want to do it. You would bring it to your senior producer, or you bring it to your. Uh, your executive producer, right? Your your department head. They say, no, it's whack. I don't, I don't like it. Now, you can try it. I will tell people this all the time. You can try your hand if you want. You can go above this person and go talk straight to Harvey or talk to Charles or talk to whomever. You could go do that if you want. But the worst possible thing that can happen if you do that is that show makes the website. Oh, yeah. Because uh, that that story makes the website. The worst thing that can happen if you do that is that it actually makes the website. And then someone who told you no... Now you dead to them. It's over. It's over. You dead to them. You, 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 it's, 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 oh. Because not only did you go over their heads, you also made them look stupid. You made them look crazy. And they're not going to get over that. It's over. No. So I'm like, I'm like, so just don't do it. So, but I've seen it happen before. And so watching it happen to Gus, it was, it was, it's a, uh, it, it was, it was crazy. 
Well, that ties that ties into what I thought aged the best. And again, this is this is that dynamic that they created in this is something that has happened at every newspaper I've ever worked at. Is that they always announce uh, they always anoint somebody. Be honest, usually ninety nine percent of the time it is a white dude to be the superstar and to be the cho- the chosen one. That has happened at every single publication I've worked. And uh, you know, what winds up happening is that there is an authority figure at the top that falls in love with somebody that the other editors are just like, yeah, he good, but I don't know if he all that. Like you, right. and they get put prime position with assignments, with other things. And it creates an entire, uh, an entire atmosphere of animosity. So that ages incredibly well. Another thing too, when Gus woke up in the middle of the night because he was worried he had transposed the numbers in the story, I have done that shit about 5,000 times. Really? Like where you have anxiety over a story that's about to be published, particularly a big story. And you are sitting there and I'm laying there in bed and I'm literally going over every detail of the story in my mind to make sure that I had it right. Because the bulk of my journalism career, when you had, uh, you know, we couldn't correct shit online. So it's like, you can just like, oh, the next day be like, hey man, I think I got that wrong. Can you go into the site and just change it? Like, nah, you, the shit was in the paper. And that was it. Right. So you had to write a correction that would appear in the day in the paper in the uh, the newspaper the next day, and right. you feel like a huge moron. I remember when I worked in Raleigh at the News and Observer. There, my first front page story, I misspelled somebody's name, and I thought I was never going to work in this business again because mm. it had been drilled into me that if you misspell somebody's name, that's like the worst mistake that you can possibly make. And right. I did it. And having to write that commercial that correction crushed my soul. Will never ever forget it. Um, I used to love shit like that, by the way. What, the read the corrections? No, I used to love when someone made a big fucking mistake like that. <laughs> Why? The bigger they are, the better it felt. Oh, man. Because, you, like, you people... You people despicable the, person, you. <laughs> like, people, the bigger they are, the better itself. You see people up there, some, somebody would do something, I'd be like, no, that's actually not. You put that in the story? I'm like, Van, don't joke. I'm like, uh, you know, they actually were never married. I don't know what you're talking about. They lived together for a while, but they weren't married. We have it in the story that they were married from. No, they weren't. They weren't married. I'm telling you, you can look it up. They were never married. And they just was together mad years. They're going to, I'm going back in. But <laughs> they changed it. And I'm over there like, ah. You are, uh, you are so terrible. It's so terrible. It's the worst thing that could ever happen with right. your reporter. Although, Talk about things that didn't age age well. Unfortunately, that's not a thing anymore. Like journalists these days are not embarrassed by mistakes the way they were in, back in my day. Damn it, right? We would damn near ask to be flogged. Right. Okay, we'd be like, no, take away our food and water. We only deserve bread the rest of the year. Like we would be hot about a mistake. And they used to put correct some newspapers. They would put the corrections that you had to write in your file. What happens with this file? I don't know. But just know when it was review time, they bring out that file and see like, okay, how many corrections did you have? And you were like literally costing yourself money every time you did it. It's a different day, people. A different day. Um, now, did you have anything for what age the worst? Uh, I don't know if I had this for last week as well, but all of this righteous dignity and truth in journalism, it seems like a big battle royale of different political interests now. And I'm not, I'm not a tinfoil hat. I'm fucking none of that. I'm not doing any of that shit. I'm just saying he cares so much about getting it right. And there are news organizations all over the place that care about getting it right. 
But it, it, and I'm not saying that they don't. I'm just saying that just to watch this, to watch someone who just seems like the only ally that he has is truth and his only enemy is the lie. It's kind of like a, it's a very old timey Perry White look at, uh, at newspapers. And it, 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 it's something that I feel like most Americans don't think exists anymore. I would agree. I mean, the, the media caring about, we could put this under the umbrella of this in terms of aging the worst, the media caring about their credibility. Right. I don't think that matters as much anymore. I would agree. Um, now, uh, one thing that struck me that aged the worst is definitely that school project meeting because editors conceiving stories strictly to win awards is a thing, <laughs> okay? But this idea, like that typical short-sighted editor thinking, like that shit doesn't really, you know, it exists in some form, but it's like that meeting right there is sort of everything that was wrong with the business. And I was like, yep, that pretty much sums up everything that that was wrong with newspapers at that time. Unfortunately, most of them have been chewed up and spit out and are, are, are working with bare bones staff that, hell, ain't nobody trying to win stories anymore. They're just trying to stay afloat. Um, I did have two things that would fall under the, we love this show, but. Okay, let's do it. And, it's, and, it, and it mostly deals with, a, 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 it, you know, I, I realized David Simon, you know, he's a journalist. So therefore his, his vocabulary is going to be very strong in whatever he works and uh, whatever he writes. I can't tell you how truly annoyed I was that in that school project meeting, the executive editor used the word, what is it, Dickinson? Dickinson. Dickinson. Dick, what yeah. the fuck is that? I had to look this up. I was like, Charles Dickens. Yeah, but what does that mean? Dickensian. Like, to, I know like, what it means. I know that it's like, it's a reference to Charles Dickens, but that doesn't make any sense. Like, how so? How did that, what do you mean? Like, it's rather. Dickensian. Like or, orphans, like, orphans and truant kids and all of that kind of stuff like that. Like Dickensian, you know, it's a lame ass word, man. I'm not saying it's not a lame ass word. I'm just saying that, you know, when you think about kids and Charles Dickens, you always think about him writing about the plight of children and 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 children that didn't have. And you know, that little nigga Tiny Tim is like he got a twisted ankle or something like that. It is a, it, it, so it that's kind of I, I got it, but also I think putting the word out there like that. Is like there's another word that I get that that gets my dander up is that whenever I'm in a conversation with someone and they're talking about the government like lording over you, and I hear the term Orwellian, I'm oh like, yeah, see, I put I, that right in that bucket, right in the like, same bucket. It's like all right, whatever. And I and like when people say that, whenever people say Orwellian, I go, hey, just to let you know, I read 1984 too. You're not fucking smarter than me, so because that's essentially that. what he's trying to say. Because it makes no sense to really use. It, I, you, you know, it kind of makes doesn't make a lot of fucking sense the, the Orwellian, and then you want to be, and then you what you really want is some lady uh, or some man to go. What is Orwellian? What, what is mean? Orwellian? So you can be like, well, this book well, 1984. This book 1984. <laughs> so I get the fuck out of here. And then they made Orwellian. it into a, a Apple commercial. <laughs> no, but um, but no, but so yeah, I get it, I get it. But he's using Dickensian in the Orwellian way. I- Yes. And I got that. I know. I got that. All he was just trying to do is lord over people. The fact that he fucking read Charles Dickens. Like, who gives yeah. a shit? And then he had to back that up. Even more annoying by using the word amorphous. Amorphous. Or right. amorphous. Right? And I was like, what are we doing here? I don't like, even know what that means. I'm not even gonna lie. Yeah, it, it's... it's. I don't know it's, what that... It's like uh, indeterminate. It means like having no pattern or structure. Yeah. Unorganized. So, yeah, I got it in the context yeah. he was using. I was like, say... you you. you 
Spare me your big words, man. Spare right. me. Oh, I forgot to bring this up in terms of what age the worst. Uh, fans giving a shit about labor strife and steroids. Because when Scott is interviewing and trying to find oh, yeah. his mythical yeah, that was person, yeah. yeah, he was like, oh, I hate baseball because of labor strife and steroids. Yeah, I said no one ever. Okay, who cares? So you don't, you don't, fuck, you don't fuck with Oliver Twisty? You don't like no, that No, no. Don't say nothing is Oliver, Oliver Twistian and I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> it's just that simple. <laughs> it's like, that shit ain't a thing. All right? You know, great, that's great, the case, expectations. great expectations is the shit, though. I mean, yeah, it, it is. I mean, I'm not, this is not an indictment or this is not me saying those works that we mentioned are not good. It is right. to say that that's some, that's some coastal elite shit. That's what I call coastal elite shit. Orwellian. You ever see the Great Expectations movie they made with Robert De Niro and Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow? No. It's such, it's such a movie of my high school years. I loved <laughs> it. Yeah, I just, it was the whole time in life. I remember watching it with my girl then. Anyway, but go ahead. No, uh, I, but no, nah, I just said, yeah, like, you know what? If that if you're going to let people roll with Orwellian or some people are, I'll be like, that was Mary J. Blygian. Now what? Oh, this I love. Now, uh, now what? This I love. Anytime <laughs> it's a song about a lot of drama, that's mm-hmm. a that's a that's, that's Blygian. I am. It's Blygian. It's Blygian. Or anytime somebody's going through a lot, it's Blygian. That's a, that's a, well, yes. But they never do it for us. No. By the way. No. They, 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 by the way, there's not a, a walker in. Like no, if it's about it's old not school, McMillionish, McMillionish, you know what <laughs> like, I'm saying? No, it's not Augustus Wilson. Then, like, uh, <laughs> like you, you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't, they don't, they don't do it for us. Is there, uh, uh, fucking um, Alex Haleyanish? <laughs> Alex, Alex Haleyanish. Is there Baldwin esque? Is there Baldwin esque? It feels like Baldwin esque. There should be. Like there should be. So all some stuff should be Baldwin esque. Baldwin esque. You're right. I like that one. That's short yeah. and sweet. Yeah, right. that's a good one. We invented an entirely new language. Write it Whole down. new language. Fuck with yeah. us. All right, now let's move on to some file this away for later. As we mentioned a few, uh-huh. I, I think Marlo asking Chris and Snoop to go get Omar. Uh-huh. That's a big one. Uh, Marlo connecting with the Greeks. Michael questioning Snoop and Chris about killing Junebug. That, as you mentioned, that's a big one. Um, and I think Buck's decision not to get involved with whatever, because at this point, so I guess we should have probably gone over that scene. When, McNul- when McNulty uh, is doctoring the homicide scene. Now, yeah, at this point, one. That's a, that's a huge part of this, but we don't know. Like at this point, did you get what he was doing? Like you get he, he was says stopped. it at the end. There's a new serial killer in Baltimore. He preys on the weakest amongst us. So he right, says the it, most vulnerable, the most vulnerable amongst us. So when he was first doing it, because I remember watching the scene for the very first time. When he was first doing it, I was bumped. I was like, "Yo, what's he doing? Like, why is he like why is he doing this?" It almost looked like at at some point it looked like. Minolte was about to fuck the body. <laughs> I know, because I was like, is he about to do, Cause especially because he's taking yeah. swings at Jameson. Yeah. And I'm like, what is he gearing himself up to right. do? Right, and I didn't know where the where it was going. And so, but then when he said it at the end, I knew what he was doing, but didn't know still why he was doing it because I hadn't put it together. The serial killer was going to mean more man hours. It was going to mean more... Uh, that they were going to get everything they needed to, they were putting pressure on people to, to get all the funds that they well, needed. It's back to the conversation they had in the bar. Like, if the victim looks different, you're going to get a different kind of response. Right. And so this is him following through with that because as you, the first two episodes, like, the frustration with McNulty has been building. And right. he is pissed. Um, and as he puts it, like, hey, promises were made and I'm going to make sure they keep them. Mm, you know, yeah, that was, yeah. that was, that's been his whole attitude with it. So that, what he does with that body is a huge file this away for later for the rest of this entire series. Uh, did you have any others that... Um... Well, Scott. Oh, Scott, yes. Scott lying about the story and basically fabricating the story because at this point, 
We don't know that Scott's lying. Right. We we don't know, and I guess I shouldn't spoil it for people. Well, I mean, <laughs> but you suspect though because right. they show him interviewing people, and everybody he interviewed, none of that had anything to do with to the do story with the story produced. he actually yeah yeah. So so Scott fabricating the story is 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 going to be you know a, obviously a huge huge deal. So that that's that's another father's way for a later moment we had. Plus, uh, obviously the whole thing of getting there early. When yeah. the yeah. scene where Chris is talking to Mike and he's saying, I show up to a job an hour early, sometimes two hours early. He's t- he's drilling at Mike's head. That's a huge follow away for later moment, too. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, all right. Now I got a little trivia for everybody. So we mentioned Scrapple. Mm-hmm. So Scrapple is actually pig scraps that they put into a loaf. <laughs> what? Yes. So farmers. OK, so they would butcher hogs. And of course, they use. You know, as with most pigs, you get you know how to see it's from the rooter to the tootie. Yeah. Every part got to be for something. And so after you get the big stuff out of the way, the ham, the pork chop, the bacon, the things that are left, hence the word scrapple, the scraps, they boil them down, mix it with cornmeal and spices, and they set it out in loaf pans. That's scrapple. What you mean? Set it out in loaf loaf pans? Like a, like about? a like a pan? You know that looks like you put meatloaf in it. They put it in that kind of pan, like a just a loaf. So so you telling me that white people? <laughs> all this year, these years, been eating chitlin bread, <laughs> and and we get we wait. Well, hold on for a second. Our community has taken all of the lumps for chitlins. We've been looked down upon. But I, first of all, there's nothing more disgusting in this world than the chitlin. Dad, I love you, but oh, keep no, my apartment free. Keep my condo free yeah. of chitlins ever. I would sooner let a fucking vampire in here. Then I will let some chitlins in here. Seriously, you know how you can't a vampire can't come into your shit if unless you invite them invite in. Invite them in, yeah. Right. If it was a vampire at my door or and some chitlins, <laughs> yo, count. Come on in, dog. Come on in. Just take a little nibble. Don't take all my shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on in. But the chitlins can't come in. The chitlins are the. They, you can't speak a chitlins name in my place. I'm not fucking with no chitlins. But now that I know that there's something called scrapple, which is basically chitlin bread. Well, but see, the thing is, they're not specific about which scraps. Like, we know for sure chitlins are intestines, if I'm not mistaken. They are intestines. Okay, so we know what that part is, but the scrapple could be like, I don't know, a pygmy. Like, it could be other things. Like, it doesn't have to be... That don't change nothing. Let's not get all righteous and indignant against the pig. I'm not getting righteous and indignant against nothing. And nothing take you know what I do on on Saturday because I don't do it. I get I go down to this place over off Pico. They got some good biscuits, and I get a bacon biscuit because ain't nothing better than some goddamn bacon. Get out of here, you know. Okay, it. first of all, the combination of that sounds heavenly. Bacon plus biscuit, B- a bacon biscuit. You eat oh, it. Absolutely. You eat it. You, you, that's what you do with it. Is what you do with it, Jamil. Is you eat it. Yes, it's a bacon biscuit. I'm, I'm with this. It's not an anti-pork thing. I eat very little pork, but it's not a it's not an anti-pork thing. What I'm saying is. There have been cultural judgments that have been made about the fact, and by the way, not just by other races, within black people, judging oh, yeah. the chitlin eaters. Now, I'm not one of the chitlin eaters, but I feel for them. So what I'm saying is I didn't realize that there was people eating chitlin bread around America, chitlin loaf, chit loaf, and calling it something else. That's how they do us. Uh, but I have to say they won the messaging wars because scrapple sounds better than chitlins. Way better. I would, I would eat scrapple. I ain't fucking with chitlins. Because scrapple, actually, when she said buy a girl some scrapple, I was like, that kind of sounds. That sounds good. It sounds yeah. delicious. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of. It's, it's, it's I a, would try it. 
Yeah, I would definitely right. try it. Um, also, uh, I should have mentioned this when we did the deep dive into Gus in the first episode, but uh, Gus's actual name is Clark Johnson. And he has directed four episodes of The Wire. He has an extensive directing career, in fact. Um, he's directed episodes of Orange is the New Black, Luke Cage, Homeland, The Walking Dead. So he is actually directing is kind of more of his thing. Mm. Um, uh, so just want to everybody know that little fun fact about Clark Johnson. And now on to the moment of truth band who won this episode. Avon Barksdale. That's a good winner right there. Easy call for me. Avon came out of this episode looking like he was still, at least in part, a gatekeeper and a kingmaker. He made $100,000, and he still got a fresh hairline even while he is in Jessup. Avon Barksdale has not been knocked down, has not been knocked out. I give it to Avon. Yeah, uh, and I would concur uh, with that because that's who I had winning in as well. I was like, he finessed Marlo, mm -hmm. his one-time enemy. They now on the same side. He got 100 large out of it, and he's still proving that, like, you know, you might be king out there, but I can still pull some strings in here. So I thought that was that was a great moment for Avon. That is going to do it for us as we wrap up episode two of season five of The Wire, the final season, Unconfirmed Reports. Uh, make sure you come back and listen to us as we power our way through these last few remaining episodes. Got episode three up on tap up next. And as always, keep watching The Wire and keep listening to us. We'll see y'all next time. 